Okay, so where um, anyone else need a syllabus and the and the poems? Um, I think this is what you need. Anyone else? So we were puzzling, and we'll continue to puzzle for God knows how long, um, about Auden's lullaby, which should be in the second sheet that you guys just got. Um, and this is in the context of uh, three lullabies that I handed out <coughs> yesterday. Um, and what we were, in a way, we can put the question that we were asking um, well, there's a question and a meta question. So the question that we were asking, in a way we can put it, is do we think the addressee of this poem is a child or an adult? Um, we'll assume, just for the sake of um, making discussion easier, that um, the addressee is female. Uh, there's no particular reason um, to insist on it either way. Um, but I think that's an assumption that Auden would have expected his readers to make in 1937. Um, Auden was himself gay, um, so it's not um, necessary that we do that. But I think just for the sake of ease of discussion and because that's what he would have um, assumed his readers would have assumed in 1937, um, we'll just talk about the addressee as female. Um, and um, the question we were asking is, is she a child or is she an adult? Um, the meta question might be something like, um, does it matter what the answer is, um, whether she's a child or whether she's adult? Or maybe another way of really putting the meta question is to ask, should we ask that question to begin with? Which is not quite the same thing as asking, does it matter? Um, a way of, of asking that is to say, does it matter whether it matters? Um, so there we, we start getting headily meta. Um, and I just want to throw that out as a sort of, sort of dim context for what we're asking. But the most basic question is, um, or the most basic question that we're attending to is, is the um, girl or woman that he's addressing a girl or a woman. Um, and we were noticing um, the, the power, the strangeness, the strange power, the powerful strangeness of some of the adjectives here. Um, the idea that her head is human, that his arm is faithless, um, that children are thoughtful, um, we didn't look at the word ephemeral, but we should, um, we will. Um, that whoever is lying in his arms, girl or woman, is a living creature, that she's mortal and guilty, um, and that she's entirely beautiful. Um, so we looked at a lot, but not, uh, not at all of those adjectives on Wednesday last namely yesterday. Um, so I thought, do people have further thoughts about that? Um, there's a, I want to take us on a detour in a second, but do people want to say anything um, right off before we go on our little detour? Yeah. Um, wait, wait. Uh, um, Justy. Yeah. Um, uh, wait, it's, I, a, it's, it's one of those poetic sound things that you Am I allowed to go 
Skip you can go with, from where we were in class. Yeah. Oh, um, well, I actually was sort of puzzling over that the entire time that I was reading it on my own, and there was like, like later on, there's the the Venus and supernatural sympathy uh, imagery, which sort of leans toward would seem to underscore, I guess, the female and the romantic love mm -hmm. portion of it. But something, the very last line of the poem caught me, where he writes. Um, let you pass, watched by every human love, and that just kind of hit me in a way that made me feel like almost as if his, you know, the kind of ambiguity of it was intentional, and it it really doesn't matter, male or female, child or adult, because it's every human love, and that's really what it's about, and the lullaby, you know, while it's couched in the context of a parent and child, is really just a... Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be. It can be kind of the world's lullaby to love, if that's not too oh, completely nice. obsequious. <laughs> but yeah, that was. It, 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 no, it. no, no. It's that nice intersection of the completely obsequious and the beautiful. <laughs> so it was, it was actually really good. Thank you. Um, yeah, Nick. Along with that, he seems to move through childhood to lover, um, to death. Mm -hmm. I think, and so. That really ties in the watch by every human love because it's like people are always watching each other, watching each other grow, watching each other fall in love. Nice. But at the same time, they're part of the process. Okay, good. Really good. Yeah. Um, do you want to, which is to say, I want you to, um, make that argument on the basis of an adjective? There's a great line, I'll just tell you this line while you think about this. Um, there's a great line in the Stephen Crane story, The Blue Hotel, um, where someone is uh, killed um, at the end of the story, a not very um, interesting person. And um, there are two people standing around looking at his dead body in the snow. And one of them is a little bit appalled and it says, you know, it's just terrible. It's like, it's, it's, it's the death of a person, of a noun in the world. And the other person says, he wasn't a noun. He wasn't even an adjective. He was an adverb at best. Um, so, um, but, but here we're talking about the adjectives. Um, so do you want to make that argument with respect to any adjective, Isabel? Oh, maybe the phrase ordinary swoon. Okay, ordinary swoon. Um, okay, yeah, it's, um, that's almost an oxymoron, ordinary swoon. Um, everyone knows what an oxymoron is, right? Um, uh, it literally means sharp stupidity. Um, so it, oxymoron is, a, is an example of itself. Um, a sharp contradiction. Um, so the point about a swoon is it's supposed to feel special, um, but this is just um, an ordinary swoon, like no big deal. You all know the experience. Your roommate comes in and says, I'm so in love with X, and um, for you that might be an eye-rolling revelation, like you're not interesting, X isn't interesting, um, the fact that you're so in love with X and that X is so in love with you is really not interesting. Um, so you're just engaged in an ordinary swoon. Um, same old, same old. Um, so if it's an oxymoron, is it a bitter one or a happy one in this case? 
do we do we want to focus on swoon or do we want to focus on ordinary? Yeah. This is a little bit of both. I mean, he puts them together for a reason. Okay. For the reason that, I mean, at the same time, the fact that every human being shares the experience is kind of comforting. Yes. But it's also a little bit disheartening. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing special about me because I feel this. Okay. So what you could say is maybe that it's great that everyone experiences transcendence, um, but the fact that everyone experiences it means it's not actually transcendence. Um, so the very fact that it's ordinary, um, even universal, is um, on the one hand that's a really good thing um, because it's not restricted to the one percent, um, but on the other hand it means that, it, that your sense of specialness and the specialness of the meaning of your own experience is an illusion. Um, and so is it good that everyone has that illusion? Is that ultimately a great thing? Because even if only 1% had the illusion, it would still be an illusion, but an illusion that uh, most people wouldn't even get to have. Or is it that if it only happened to a few special people, that would mean it in fact was special, but the fact that it happens to everyone means that it isn't? I mean, these are questions. I, we don't have to answer it yet. Um, I was, there's a particular tooth I was trying to pull, um, which is what's the last adjective in the poem? Human. And where do we see it first? Yeah. So it's her head who, which is human. But where has the human migrated at the end? It's become universal. Okay, every human love, so it's become universal. Maybe that every there is picking up from ordinary and giving us an answer to our earlier question. Um, in the situation which is a sleeper. What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the structural situation of the very first moment, and in fact the structural situation of any lullaby, you could say? Go to sleep. Or okay. you, you are asleep. Yeah, you are, stay asleep. <laughs> um, you are at peace, that's good, stay asleep. Um, Crystal, no, not Crystal, or your hand wasn't up? Both. Both. Um, <laughs> name? Maya. Maya. And your hand still isn't up. Okay, I thought it was. Um, so the structural situation is a sleeper and the other person? Um, why Maya? See? Now we've corrected both errors. <laughs> the other person is like the, the singer who's like watching over them? Yes. To, to use the very last verb of the poem, the watcher. So there's a sleeper and a watcher. Um, someone asleep and someone watching the person asleep. Ben? I mean, by nature of the lullaby, this, this sentiment of kind of like mixed pleasure and sorrow is only, is only the property of the person who's singing the poem. It's kind of not, it's not shared at all by the person who's sleeping. Okay, that's, yeah, a very important point. Um, that the very nature of a lullaby is um, that it is a poem that addresses someone who doesn't receive the address or who shouldn't be receiving it. Um, who the whole point is that they shouldn't be understanding what we're trying to understand in this poem. Even if she's half asleep, um, the whole point is for her is not to wake her up and say, wait a second, you've used that adjective before. <laughs> um, but 
um, for her to be lulled into a more full sleep, hence lullaby. It lulls you. Um, so we can actually ask what seems like um, both a central and possibly an odd question to ask about a lullaby, which is, who is it addressed to? If you think about most lyric poems, they're written in the absence of the person to whom they're addressed. Um, they're, they're um, I love you so much, but you're far away and are not thinking of me right now. Um, that sort of poem. Um, think of elegies. I love you, but you're dead. Um, that there's a great one-line elegy by W.S. Merwin. Do people know Merwin? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly the right yeah to, to, to say. <laughs> Olga, we read a lot of him in Olga's poetry writing class last semester. Yeah, no, he's, he's a magical writer. It's, you just don't know how he does it. Um, but he has a one-line elegy, which is simply, the title is Elegy, and the poem is, Who Would I Show It To? Um, <laughs> And that, but generally what an elegy is, you could say, um, is an attempt to bring the dead person back to life, however fitfully and however illusorily, by saying something, displaying something to them, displaying your own grief and mourning to them, telling them how much you miss them and how much you mourn them, as though just in the act of telling, there is, to quote John Milton, um, you are able to dally with false surmise, as he puts it in an elegy to um, someone he went to college with, um, as though somehow your grief matters to the dead. Um, poems that arise out of a certain kind of passion um, have that quality of addressing the absent but attempting to bring the absent back into the world, into the um, um, space into the vicinity of the poet, um, however fitfully. Gila? I think that another purpose of an elegy is not really um, for the dead, but for the living. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in one sense, as a sort of catharsis for the author, but it also, I mean, a common trope in elegies is just playing with the sort of immortality that comes from recording the legacy yeah. of someone who's no longer there. Exactly. But the idea would be, and that's, that's, um, Something. Are you thinking of Lycidas when you say that in particular? I wasn't thinking of anything. Okay, well, so the, so the greatest um, elegy in English, the one that, that sort of sets the tone for all other serious elegies in, in English, is the poem I mentioned, uh, uh, I quoted from a second ago, uh, John Milton's poem, Lycidas. And um, that's where he says, for to interpose a little ease, let us dally with, false sur with a false surmise. Um, he says that the reason, or the speaker of that elegy says that the reason he's writing the elegy, or the hope, the one reasonable hope that the elegy can give him is that when he dies, someone will speak his elegy, will remember him. He's doing it for the dead Lycidas, and so may it be in the future that when someone um, passes his urn, he will turn and say something about Milton himself. Um, but in either case, in any version of immortality that an elegy is supposed to provide, um, either for the elegist or for the object of elegy, for the person, the elegy, for the dead person, um, there's still this sense that the poem can do something against um, the loss and obliteration of death. And there's still 
Um, I mean, I, I think I just want to make a very, very simple point, which is that written poetry and um, something happens to poetry when it's written. That's not something we're going to talk about in this class, but something happens to poetry when it's written as opposed to when it's oral, as with Homer. Written poetry is poetry that the poets write alone in general in their rooms. And so what you have is an act of what looks like communication, um, passionate communication, um, something which is um, somehow intended to matter to someone, not only the poet, but to someone else. Um, and yet that, that passionate feeling of a desire to communicate is occurring in solitude. So that's a very strange thing about poetry. Poetry is a very strange thing. Why there is poetry um, is not an easy question to answer. Um, if you were um, designing the universe from scratch, poetry would probably not occur to you as something that you would put into people's um, psychological um, uh, constitution. Um, but at any rate, part of the strangeness is um, an experience of writing out of some passion which is the kind of passion that you have in communicating with others and trying to get them to understand or feel or see um, you, how you understand or feel or see things. Um, and therefore, even in solitude, writing a poem is a kind of, just to put this in the most general way possible, is a kind of attempt to draw ghosts, if nothing else, um, shades, phantoms, um, um, parts of an absent person or persons um, into your solitude. Um, so this, the, the, this is sounding sort of more, more dipply supernatural than I mean it to sound. Um, but it's an act of passionate communication where the, whoever you're communicating with isn't there. And it's somehow as though the passion with which you attempt to communicate um, will summon them up from being far away, from at worst being dead, um, in love poems, from being in another space and not being in love with you. Um, but then there's this love poem, and somehow you imagine that if you can only express your love powerfully enough, that'll make a difference to that person. Um, and then they'll fall for you. Um, that is what lullabies are the opposite of. Lullabies are not designed to bring the addressee closer and into greater awareness of the person singing the lullaby, but the opposite of that. So. They're strange. They're, in a sense, the earliest poems we ever experience are lullabies. Um, we experience them as sung, um, as songs rather than um, as spoken. Um, you will rarely see someone trying to rock a child to sleep by saying, rock a bye baby on the treetop. You can't even do it without getting into the, into the rhythm of the music. Like, imagine if you, everyone knows rock a bye baby, yeah? Imagine trying to imagine what it would sound like if you didn't know um, the music for it, the melody. So, 
it's really hard to do. The melody just comes with it. That when you realize how horribly morbid it is. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that the music and the content are are, are at odds with each other. Um, but that would be the point of a lullaby. That there is it to the half asleep person. There is one channel that they're receiving on, and one and one channel that they're muted. That's muted. Um, for a baby, the muting is partly because the baby doesn't understand words, but does understand and feel rhythm and feel melody. Um, and so for the person singing the lullaby, and lullabies in general are full of violence. Um, this is an interesting fact about lullabies. Um, is um, the person singing it is saying more than he or she wants understood by the person hearing it. So the very fact that a poem is called lullaby is a really interesting situation. Um, notice then that um, what I want us to turn to the Yates in a second, and then we'll come back to um, Auden. But notice then that the word human has migrated from her to him. The situation is there's a watcher a faithless watcher. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. There's a faithless watcher and a human being who is falling asleep. And it's almost as though the second line of the poem says there's an opposition between being human and being faithless. Now, it's not that humans... If, well, do people see that right away, that, that the striking adjective, the two striking adjectives, the first two striking adjectives that everyone came up with yesterday were human and faithless. No one thought sleeping was odd. Um, lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Um, so she's asleep, and the point is to keep her asleep, because she might be restless or may only be half asleep, or for whatever reason, um, the point is to keep um, her asleep. So what happens to, what, what does human modify in the second line? Easy question. What noun does that adjective modify? Head. head. Yeah. Um, so the point is that there are two adjectives that modify head. Um, and I'm just going to call sleeping an adjective. There are two adjectives that modify head, sleeping and human. And it's almost as though for sleeping, you, we substitute human. It's your sleeping head, in a sense, synonymous with that is that your head is human. So being sleeping and being human are not made, not made quite the same thing in those first two lines, but um, the to be asleep is simply to settle into your own humanness. There's nothing to be said about you except that you're human. Um, you can't sleep slyly. You can't sleep hypocritically. All of, all of those things would mean you're not really asleep. You can't sleep um, faithlessly. You can't sleep um, guiltily. You can't sleep. Any kind of adjective that you would use um, to um, undercut the full um, integrity of a person is not an adjective that you can apply to that person asleep. 
um, to the fact that that person is sleeping. Somehow sleep and innocence go together. Um, even if only briefly, sleep and innocence go together. Um, and then so what's the opposite of this human and, well, let's just call it this human sleep. What adjective is opposed to that? Faithless. So it's as though the situation, it's not, a, it's not a definitional opposition, it's a situational opposition. To be awake is somehow to be faithless, at least for Auden. Um, obviously you know or you should know that it's always dangerous to um, name the speaker of a poem by the name of the poet. Um, but the rule in this class will be, unless there's a reason not to, you could, and in fact should. Um, you have to learn not to do that. You've all learned that at some point in your life, that we talk about the speaker um, rather than the poet. The speaker here seems... There's a reason to do that, and that is that the poet is aware of things that um, we will um, um, deduce about the speaker. Um, even though the speaker may not be aware of those things. And in some cases, it's very clear that the poet and the speaker are simply not the same person. Um, Browning has a poem called My Last Duchess, um, for example, where the speaker is, uh, is a um, vicious and murderous Italian count um, who has, um, or an Italian duke, who has had his 14-year-old wife murdered in order to take all her possessions from her and also be able to remarry another 14-year-old girl who presumably he will later murder. That's not Browning. Um, that's not what he did. We're supposed to hate the speaker of that poem. Um, but in a lyric especially, um, I think you do less distortion if you name the speaker, if you give the speaker the name of the poet than if you don't. Um, not doing it makes it seem too planned out and too cynical. And you lose something about the voice if you do that. So Auden is awake. She is asleep. Somehow being awake is faithless um, in ways that the poem doesn't specify any further. Um, that is, you may think, and a lot of people who know only the first two lines of this poem think, um, okay, so he feels guilty about the fact that he has stepped out on her. Um, and that would make her an adult and him someone who is lying awake while he looks at her asleep and she doesn't know that he's um, seeing or has been seeing someone else and, he's, and hasn't kept his faith. Nothing in the poem justifies that reading. Um, it's just a, a natural assumption to make from the first two lines. Um, so, so human versus faithless, the faithless are those who, are, who watch, just schematically. The faithless watch, the humans sleep. And so what happens then in the last line? How does the poem circle back and resolve? What's happened to that adjective human? Yeah? Now the humans are the, the ones watching. Yeah, that somehow the humanity of the sleeper has also become the humanity of the watcher. Um, I don't think that they've switched positions. I think that um, the poem has brought us to a point. The, the Auden has thought um, this moment through a point, through to a point where um, watching 
a living creature watching a human sleep with love all night long makes him feel human too, makes him feel that that adjective applies to him or to everyone who watches. Um, so let's get back to the poem, I don't know, I was going to say in a minute, I probably mean in a week, um, and look at the Yeats poem, which is above that on the page, and which is simply called, um, oh, did I not give you a copy? Yeah, um, it's called A Cradle Song. The title is on the page with the um, Blake. Um, so the poem is called A Cradle Song. Um, Auden really, really loved Yeats. And um, in fact, when Yeats died, which was a couple of years after Lullaby was written, Yeats died in 1939, um, Auden wrote a really great elegy for Yeats. Um, and um, there's a famous um, set of stanzas in that elegy that um, he later canceled. But um, you can see their relation to a poem like Lullaby. Um, Trying to, I'm trying to think if I can actually remember them. Time that is in um, time that is indifferent to the brave. No, uh, time that is something to the brave and innocent, and indifferent in a week to a beautiful physique, worships language, and forgives all of those by whom it lives. Time that with this strange excuse pardoned Kipling and his views, and will pardon Paul Claudel, pardons them for writing well. Um, so I forget what the adjective is. Time that is something to the brave and innocent, and indifferent in a week to a beautiful physique, worships language and forgives all of those by whom it lives. So um, in the elegy of Yeats is one of those by whom language lives. And so, t so he's saying time will always remember you. Yeats. Um, but he's also saying that's what time does, that time doesn't care about the brave and innocent. Time doesn't care about the beautiful, indifferent in a week to a beautiful physique. Um, all it cares about is language. Um, so that sense that beauty is ephemeral, which we get in the lullaby, um, that is, um, sorry, I'm just looking for um, thought. Um, Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children, and the grave proves the child ephemeral. So time takes beauty away. That's what, he's, that's what he'll say two years later in the elegy for Yeats. Um, I can't believe I can't remember the word, but at any rate, um, it doesn't care about the brave and innocent. It is indifferent to beauty. That's time. Um, so what do we do under those conditions? So here's Yeats's poem for his, um, in this case, his, his baby daughter. Um, someone want to read it? Again, this should be three stanzas. There's a break between mood. Um, there's a break after the word mood. Um, you look like you want to read it, Rob. Good. God, I'm terrible at reading <laughs> The angels are stooped above your bed the weary of trooping with the whimpering dead. God's laughing in heaven to see you so good. The sailing seven are gay with his mood. I sigh that kiss you, for I must own that I shall miss you when you have grown. Great. That was good. Um, 
It's only it's the angels are stooping, not the angels oh. are stooped. Sorry. Um, so she's in her cradle. She's presumably asleep, but not necessarily. Um, and is he full of delight or is he full of sadness? Okay, yeah, good. Um, Isabel? Yeah, I was just going to say it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet, okay. Jesse? Melancholy, it seems. Yeah, it seems, but so th are, those aren't all quite the same thing. Bittersweet and melancholy are not quite the same thing. And there does seem to be a lot of delight in the poem. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with bittersweet. That's, that's better. Yeah. Um, he feels that there's laughter in heaven. The angels is, are stooping above your bed. They're all really glad to be seeing you. Gillen. Uh-huh. Because it, it's sort of um it's sort of unexpected. It's almost disruptive the syntax of that line. And if you think about what does that even modify syntactically, I sigh that kiss you, I think it's I. Yeah. You know, I am you know, um I who kiss I who you kiss am sighing. Am sighing yeah. right? So I think it's sort of highlighting the contrast between the laughter of God and the delight of the angels. You know, every, like all of these people are or beings are, are really happy and delightful, but I, the one who have the most right to be happy, I'm sad because I, I know that all of this is temporary. Yeah. Um, and yet I love it. That is, I love, I am, I, what I'll miss is this moment, which means that I'll miss the moment um, when I realize that I'll miss you, too. Um, that's the only thing wrong with this moment is that it's ephemeral. Um, it's perfect, but ephemeral. Um, and there's delight everywhere, and he participates in that delight. Um, but even in the midst of that delight, he sighs, because maybe one tribute to the delight is that um, he's already looking to when um, he will miss this moment. Um, he expects her to grow up. And as she did, um, and he expects to know her as an adult, as he did. Um, but it's this moment is just so delightful um, that the delight becomes entangled in itself, you could almost say. Um, it's so great that he wants it to last, but of course what's delightful about it is, is its spontaneous presentness um, rather than the idea of its lasting. We know what lasts. Um, the first stanza tells us what lasts forever, which is what? The whimpering dead. The whimpering dead, yeah. That's what gets you tired. So the angels, here's this new life. That's wonderful. The, and the angels come because that's where they want to be. Ben? I was in the sense that the whimpering dead doesn't, doesn't just apply to the actual dead. It's almost like a description of Adulthood. Okay, sure. What happens to you when you stop being innocent and sweet and like his baby daughter? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. That is that that um, again. If you if you say there's a basic contrast here between her and the whimpering dead, then we adults would all be in the whimpering dead category if we could only be in one. Leia. Yes, yes Leia. Yeah. <laughs> 
um, that adults at a sort of death because he says, I shall miss you, not when you're dead, but when you're grown up. You yeah. Know, it's not like she doesn't exist anymore, but, but in a way she's died. Yeah. Okay, good. So that, who is he saying? Here's this question of whom is the poem addressed to? Um, I shall miss you when you are grown. I must own that I shall miss you um, when you have grown. Um, so will she be more or less there when she's grown up? Or Jesse, what did you want to say? Oh, I, well, you're saying who is it addressed to? And I think in the same vein as the the lullaby, it's you know this this may be something that he's intending when she's grown that you know she'll see and sort of maybe have a better understanding of his love. But also, and I guess I think at present it's probably a little bit for himself. I think he's sort of saying it in a way to psych himself out because there's sort of he needs, you know, he need. Uh, I guess a lot of reasons why, why poets write is to have some kind of tangible representation of, of what they're feeling because they just can't they 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 want to be able to look at it and see it and analyze it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um yeah, good. Um No, your hand's not up. Uh <coughs> There's, something about, um, well, yeah, I mean, that, in a, in a sense, what you're asking is a question to, it, um, who, whom is he owning this to? Uh, who does he <coughs> confess this to? Um, there's probably also a sense that, um, again, by drawing the line, um, by saying there is this future when I'll miss you, um, also is a line that that insulates the present. That is part of what's great about about what's happening now. To see you so good, um, such a parental thing to say. Um, you know, you're you're really being good. Um, it's not good in the way that good is used in most poems. Um, it's good the way parents um, call children who brush their teeth and um, wash behind the ears good. Um, and the idea that God's laughing in heaven to see you so good, um, it's just really wonderfully captures um, the language of early childhood, um, the language that, early ch that children experience in early childhood. And the line is drawn between that, between this wonderful present moment using this wonderful language of, that, that, that are used, used for, for very young children to the future when the language that's being used is just regular official language. Leia? Can I just ask what the sailing seven are? Uh, the Pleiades. Um, the constellation of the Pleiades, um, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. Um, and so it's just, um, if you look up in heaven there, the, 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 you can see the Pleiades um, all year long. They're, they, they never set, um, unlike Orion. Um, so they're, they're stars that people notice. Subaru actually is the Japanese name for the Pleiades. Um, the number of stars in the Pleiades uh, differs depending on, on the, the way you've been taught to recognize the constellations. Um, in Japan, I think it's they're, they're the six most prominent stars are what they call Subaru. Um, and that's why the Subaru, if you look at a Subaru, there's six stars on the, on the um, logo. Um, 
<laughs> Probably you really didn't need to know that for this poem. Um, but um, so so everything is wonderful, um, and the one thing that he's doing is both making this the, the spontaneity of this moment um, in just underlining how spontaneous it is um, because it can't last. Um, but underlining it um, by saying that it won't last, and talking to her in her cradle in ways that she wouldn't understand, um, and just saying, "Boy, this is really, really great. Um, I'm really going to miss this," which is a way of saying it's really, really great. Um, but also knowing that he's going to miss it. But part of what's great about it is that she doesn't, she can't understand what he's saying there. That is, I can say this, and you you don't understand what I'm saying. Um, and it's just wonderful that you don't understand what I'm saying. Um, when you do understand, I'll miss you. When you become a person who understands this, then I'll miss you. Um, but right now, um, there you are, and that's wonderful. And then I think that there's something really great about the I must own there in the third to last line. Um, that he's not really the person who is in charge of um, the situation. She is. She has, um, in the same way that she gets God to laugh and the angels to give up their trooping around, trooping with the whimpering dead, um, in the same way that here's this child who just attracts everyone to her. Um, you know, the point about God's laughter is that's spontaneous too. It's a wonderful image that God's laughing in heaven to see you so good. Um, that's so not like the God of most poems. Um, the God of most poems is the God in charge of everything. But here's a God who just like, wow, he starts laughing. He didn't expect that. Laughter is always unexpected. That's what makes it laughter. Um, he's delighted by this. Um, and Yeats too. Um, is provoked, provoked, sparked into having to own that he will miss this moment um, in the same way that God is sparked into laughter um, and the angels are somehow sparked into stooping around um, the bed of the child. Um, Faith, um, was your hand up? Um, I do have something Good. I kind of felt like uh, he was talking to like all parents, like it's our responsibility to eventually notice that we have to let them go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, eventually, but not yet. There's a catcher in the rye feeling here. That is um, the very thing that Holden Caulfield, you've all read it, I presume? Um, no? Yeah. Okay. So anyone not? Um, did you all read it in high school? Is this still in a signed book? Good. Um, my experience is that, that like every few years, students either really love it they, they, the students students have waves of high school experience of Catcher in the Rye which is that every few years there's just a wave of students who hate it and think it's stupid and think that um, teachers who haven't been shall I say hip and groovy and with it um, and non-square for 40 years think that this will speak to them and then a few years later students just think wow this book is really great so um, did you guys like it or not? Okay, good. Did you really? I absolutely. How come? Um, I don't know. I just 
just didn't, I, I was really expecting something really profound and it just didn't really speak to me. Maybe if I read it again now, I would get more out of it. At the time, I really did not enjoy it. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, next. I, I read it yeah. twice, once as a freshman in high school and once as a senior. And the first time, like, I absolutely hated it and everything about it. And the second time, like, I was like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so, um, I really hated this, but I must own that when I got older, um, I don't know, <laughs> I felt less alone. Um, Gila? I read it as a freshman in high school, and I really liked it at the time. And then the year after I graduated, I read Franny and Zooey. And I was like, this is really great. Why don't people teach this? Like, why does Catcher in the Rye get all the attention? Because I don't know. I thought it was an equally, maybe even a better book. I, th I think it's partly that Franny and Zoe, you probably need a little more context for. Um, and in, it's slightly imperfect. Um, but I agree. I mean, Franny and Zoe is what you should read. After, after you know that you're interested in Salinger, you should read Franny and Zoe because um, they are great. Um, okay, let's just, uh, just one more word about this then. Um, what I guess it's one, one more word about what we'll do next week um, read these again we'll, get, we'll go back to the Auden again if you haven't read or even if you have you should read the, um, the two nurses songs um, which are clearly um, part of this but part, part of this whole idea of singing to children um, and think more about um, what it means to sing a poem in a situation where there's a sort of divergence, bifurcation of meaning for the official addressee and meaning for the poet, and then also trifurcation, um, the meaning for the reader. Um, if you can read this, you're not the child. Um, and if you can read this, you're not asleep. Um, just the, the reason I brought up Catcher in the Rye is the idea of Holden's, um, as you know, the idea of Catcher in the Rye is that what he would like to do in life and what presumably he's doing in the book is saving children from falling off the cliff as they go running through the Rye. Um, so they can have perfectly spontaneous lives and he can enjoy that spontaneity even though it's no longer part of him and part of his life. Um, the Yeats's lullaby, maybe Auden's has something of that feel to it as well. Um, do people want to see Yeats's elegy? I mean, Auden's elegy on Yeats? I, I'll just post that on Latte. It's worth looking at. Um, and have a good weekend. Thank you.